0: to gather together those who are very important in their life and they want to give them parting instructions. They want to give them final instructions before they go. The things that they think are most important or those they care and love about so much they understand going forward. I remember when uh, I was called to my grandparents' house and my grandfather who, when I was growing up, was very much a Side to give me his party instructions, and I remember them word for word. I was only, later I was young, and uh, I still remember them to this day. And so, I find myself in a similar situation today. And so today, I want. we're going to go to the Word of God to find out how that's supposed to be, what that's supposed to look like. Now, many of you would think the Apostle Paul would be the guy that would have suffered no setbacks in his ministry, which, I mean, come on now, if anybody could shepherd a church and always know the right response, always know the right way to uh, uh, to act, what's the right course of action, it would be the Apostle Paul. But yet you read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and uh, in verses 4 to 11. I'll just give you an idea of what his ministry was like. He says, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in much affliction, in hardships, in distress, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand of the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well, unknown, as dying yet behold we live as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Probably the most disheartening part of many of these attacks that Paul was talking about is that it came from believers. And the same was true for Christ as well. Remember that the same crowd that was chanting Hosanna, Hosanna on Sunday was chanting on Thursday, crucify him, crucify him on Thursday. And ultimately it was Judas, one of the twelve, with the ultimate betrayal. But none of them by surprise. He had forewarned the disciples that he would be leaving and that Peter would deny him three times that very night. Peter, yes, that Peter, the Peter that said he would rather die than abandon the Lord, will in fact deny him, just as the Lord is going to prophesy shortly after this passage today. But how did it? How had the disciples who had been with Christ daily for such a long time all scatter and hide and then, in Peter's case, deny him? I think most of the time we justify our actions towards others, both believers and unbelievers, far too easily. What do I mean by that? I mean, I think we can minimize our words and our actions. saved people and unsaved people. And we see that played out repeatedly in churches around the world today. Oh, sure, I said that, but how was I to know they would take that so personally? Oh, I know I got a bit out of hand, but did you see what they did first? Now, you would think as believers that we would know better all be better friends to each other than we are, myself included. We could all be more faithful to our relationships to each other than we are at times, myself included. But sadly, that's not always the case. However, none of this, as I pointed out earlier, is new. He struggles to love each other and to forgive each other and to serve each other. Lord himself experienced many of these same issues, but Christ knew that this was going to be an issue for his followers. He knew this was going to be a problem. And so he gathers his followers together in the upper room in John chapter 13, and he gives them his final instructions, and then one particularly distinguishing thing that he wants them to remember that in verse 35 of John chapter 13. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. We're all very acquainted with this verse, but I don't think we've really taken the time to ponder how we should do this. What are all the implications if we don't? So that's what we want to do this morning. We're going to look at the gospel of John. 31 to 35. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again, for these dear saints who are here today. Pitter-patter of little feet running down the aisle, anxious to go and learn more about you. What a blessing that is. And I pray, Father, as we walk through the gospel text here again today, that you'd give us open eyes to see. the setting is the upper room. As I said, he's gathered, Jesus has gathered his disciples together for his final instructions. He has just finished washing their feet as a demonstration of the level of service and humility that will be required of them when he's gone. And he's announced that Judas is the one who will betray him, even though they didn't really fully understand that. Then, beginning in verse 31, he announces that he'll be leaving them soon. So let's look at that together. He says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified with him, or in him. I'm sorry. Notice that Jesus chooses to focus on his glory here instead of the pain and the suffering and the humility that he knows awaits him in just mere hours. Every attribute of our Savior is on full display at the cross, my friends. If you ever want to know about the character of God, if you ever want to know about the the essence of God, all the attributes of God, look no further than the cross, because they're all on full display there. What am I talking about? Mercy. Grace. Compassion. suffering, loving kindness, and most importantly, love. In fact, love is manifested at the cross in a way we still have trouble comprehending today fully. Jesus says this later in John 15, greater love has no one than this that one do what? Lay down his life for his friends, which is exactly what Christ is about. Or how about what Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love towards us in that what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's what love looks like in God's eyes. This is what he calls love. Yes, the one who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. How? In him. This seems to be a far different kind of love than the one that is often practiced in the world today. Verse 32 here, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. After speaking about his glory at the cross, he then speaks about God the Father's glory. See, God the Father's attributes are also on full display at the cross. Mercy, grace, compassion, empathy, long-suffering, loving kindness, and love. What a tremendous expression of love to send your Son to die a humiliating death on the cross at the hands of a rebellious crowd of people who you came to save. That's what he does. Matter of fact, he prophesied what would happen. He knew before the world was formed that this needed to happen this way. Would you send your son to die on a cross for an ungrateful, rebellious people like this? It's a hard question, isn't it? God did. So yes, his glory is on full display here as well. And then the narrative shifts a little. Look at verse 33. He says, little children, I'm with you. I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot go. Notice the language changes now from the Godhead, the second person in the Trinity, talking about his glory and talking about the Father's glory to a shepherd's heart. little children, he tells them this is the last night they're going to be together before the cross. He wants them to know that where he's going, they're not going to be able to follow, at least not yet. They don't know that part. That's coming up in the next chapter. Like, as a matter of fact, in John 14, he'll explain further what will happen after he's resurrected. Uh, he's going to come back for them. He says, you will seek me. And then just like he had told the Pharisees back in John 7, 34, you'll seek me, but where I'm going, you cannot come now. And the disciples, they're going to be seeking him also, but they can't go where he's going, at least not yet. And the Pharisees, they're going to be seeking him for entirely different reasons, but they can't go where he's going. Matter of fact, in John chapter 8 tells the Pharisees that they would die in their sins, their hardness of heart. That's a different message about their future than what he's sharing with his disciples here, but nevertheless, neither can go with him right now. And so as we move to the next verse here, Jesus makes a very defining statement about what it means to be a follower. He has a new expectation for them, and it's not just an expectation. I want you to notice here, it's a command. Notice verse 34. He says, a new, what? Commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, what's the difference between an expectation and a command? The expectation is the certainty that you will comply in obedience. So, I remember so much when my kids were little, when I told them to do something, my expectation is, is that they would do that. I didn't have a doubt in my mind that they would not do that, quite honestly, because I told them to do that. So, what was the expectation? The expectation is that they would comply in obedience. Now, grandchildren, that's a different story. My own children here. I spoke to them that way, and the expectation is that they would do that. But a command is slightly different because it leaves little doubt as to whether the decision to comply is even debatable or that it's subject to our own personal feelings or whatever metric we want to run that through. A command is a command. So when God gives us a command, it's not subject to the whims of our personal feelings and insights. We don't when God says do this, we don't say, "Well, I don't know." me you know, think about that a minute. Is this good for me? I don't know. You might remember Job decided that that would be a good course of action to remember he wanted to, he wanted to have his day in court with God. He wanted to put God on trial for what happened to him, and he demanded his day in court. And if you're familiar with the story of Job at all, you'll know that that didn't really work out that well for Job when he thought he would put God on trial. God quickly reminded him that he was God and Job was not. And so, no, we don't get to hear God's commands and then decide if we'll be obedient to them or not. He commands and we obey. Now, notice the command here, that you love one another. How? Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, did you notice the escape clause there in verse 34? Look closely there. you see it? No? That's because there's not one there. You see, the new commandment, the expectation of obedience to all Christ followers, is what? To love one another. How are we to do that? Jesus says, even as I have loved you. That's the command. There's no escape clause, my friends. Wow. But wait a second here. What about if I disagree with someone? Do I still have to love them like Jesus loved me? The answer is yes. Yes. How about if they say or do something that offends me first? Do I still have to love them like Jesus loves me? What if they abandon me or make false statements or gossip or whatever injustice I perceive has occurred against them? Doesn't that provide the escape clause here? In verse 34, the answer is no. No. Beloved, there's no escape clause there was, don't you think Paul would have used it when he was enduring such suffering for the cause of Christ? The vast majority of which he suffered, believe it or not, was at the hands of fellow believers. Or what about Jesus? Couldn't he have used the verse 34 escape clause here? No. Why not? Because there is none. Beloved, we are commanded to love one another as Christ has demonstrated his love towards us. And how did he do that? Agape love, the sacrificial love of the will. Matter of fact, even to the point of death, death on the cross. We, we choose to love one another in the body of Christ, even when we're being our most unloved. Why do we do that? Because Christ, that's how Christ loves us. That's the standard, my friends. That's the command. It's not open to debate. We don't get to decide if our feelings trump God's word. And why? Why is this so important? Well, that's told to us in verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice this is how all men will know that we are followers of God. Christ, that we are committed Christians. It's by the way we love one another. And notice again, it's not by how much we know. It's not by how often I served in the nursery or how many times I've volunteered for the choir or how many tables I've wiped down or how many sidewalks I've shoveled. Or People will know that you're a follower of Christ. Because of your love for one another. How important is this that we understand this fully as a body of Christ? It's important enough to be included in Jesus' final instructions to his disciples, my friends. See, verse 35 is really the linchpin of this whole text, isn't it? Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. You cannot go where I'm going, but you will still see me working in and through my followers if they're loving one another. You'll still see me. You may not see me physically, but you'll know that I'm there because I'll be working in their lives. And they're going to demonstrate a love for each other that's far different than the world defines love. But not just believers, although that's a huge component notice also all men. This means unbelievers too. And this is why how we treat one another is such a huge component of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Others are supposed to see Jesus working in and through us every day. That they know how the world responds when they have conflict with each other. My goodness, you could just flip through the news or spend 15 minutes scrolling through social media. You'll have a pretty good idea of how the world handles its conflicts. But what about when there's a conflict between believers and unbelievers? Is Christ visible anywhere in that conflict? How about between two believers? Can the world look at a conflict between two believers and see agape, sacrificial love for one another that Christ is talking about here? if we're going to magnify Jesus in the world, then we must, must demonstrate love to one another, or Christ is not magnified. In fact, he's diminished by our actions. We should be the first to trust one another. We should be the first to forgive one another, to stand by one another, to stand up for one another, to be steadfast and faithful to one another. This is what Jesus would call What? loving one another as I have loved you. Even if it comes at great personal cost, we must love each other with the agape love that he just described. And when we do, Christ is glorified. And when we don't, my friends, no matter how much we feel we're justified in our actions, we diminish Christ and his glory. It's bigger than... damage is done to the glory of Christ by some of the actions we take as believers over time. I'm just talking generally all Christians here. When Christians are fighting with each other over the color of the carpet or the paint in the nursery, or I wonder how many times many have been drawn by the Holy Spirit to see Christ only to be completely discouraged by the lack. scroll through social media, and they see the vitriol and the venom that can be directed towards other believers just because they disagree with them. John MacArthur writes this, uh, quote, Unfortunately, in almost every church in the world, there are little factions and splits and cliques, and this little guy over here with his theological shotgun ready to fire away with anybody who doesn't agree with them, and you got everybody fighting for their own little four square feet, and then somebody doesn't like this person, and this person doesn't like somebody, and it's a mess, and then possible gossip and backbite and talk and criticize. And the world looks and they say, I don't see a lot of love here. You keep talking about love of Jesus, love of Jesus, love of Jesus. Where's the love of Jesus here? He finishes, I don't know whether they're for real or not. End quote. Beloved, we may not agree about every issue. We may look at something that's causing us concern and have two completely different takes. on the source of the problem is, or even what the course of action is to remedy the issue. We may not have the same thoughts about how to reach out to our community, or what's the best way to serve our community, or or what's the best way to disciple, or how should we share our lives together. We may be light years apart from each other on some issues, but if we love one another, if we extend grace to one another, demonstrate that it's a powerful testimony from Christ in the world. They're watching. They're watching very closely. Just because believers disagree from time to time does not mean we can ignore or disobey the commandment to love one another. And no matter how much you think you're in the right about something, without love, my my friends, I can share with you some of the differences we've had in this church over the 20 years I've been here. I'll give you an example of what it looks like when we love one another first, when every issue is about Christ and his glory and not about us. We had a debate here 15 years ago about whether to put carpet in the West Chapel or not. I don't know why we're having a debate. There were barely three threads holding the whole thing together, but that was the debate. There were even pews in that room for And so we had to decide do we want the pews or do we not want the pews? to go want new carpeting or not new carpet? What color should we paint? Above and on and on and on. Eventually, though, we decided that this was a good thing. We would use this. So we did. And we donated the pews to a startup church in Echatonica, Illinois. And they're still being used there today. It's a little church plant. Praise God. We had a debate about the new soundboard that we've been enjoying for over a decade. Whether we should get it, whether we needed it, how come? We went on and on, on. But eventually, we decided yes. We donated all of our old sound equipment to Andy Gerwin, all the church plants in Guyana. And when I was there to visit, Cindy and Ruby, they're using it. All of our old screens, all of our old sound equipment, it was all brand new for them. And they still praise us to this day. Well, more recently, we had to remodel the auditorium. Paint versus drywall. Paint over drywall. TVs versus projectors. White paint over the old paneling. Drop-down screens or TVs. Well, how big a TV. That went on for years, my friends. That one was a big one. How about live stream versus audio? Or if you're old enough to remember, church van versus elevator. I'm really dating myself here. Painting the youth group or not? What color should we allow the youth to have paintbrushes in their hands? Anywhere near? wall in our church. My friends, there have been many, many more issues where there have been differences in opinions over the last couple decades, and many more beyond that for those who have been here longer than I, but I don't have time to list them all that occurred over the span of the last two decades. But I'm thankful for this, my friends, that this church, by and large, has traditionally served. his church and we are but servants here. And if if this church should ever forget that, we will struggle here. As will every church. If we ever begin to put our preferences or our feelings or our priorities over the obedience to Christ, we will be destined church has done historically for 91 years now, and that's to put our desire to see Christ magnified, and our desire to be obedient to loving one another so that our testimony grows stronger and stronger in the unsaved world. Well, it all begins by loving one another. So point number one, Christian love is manifested to our fellow believers. Here's point number two, Christian love is manifested to the unbelievers. There's yet another way that we demonstrate our love of Christ as his followers, and that's when we love unbelievers. And this is an area that we can struggle with at times, isn't it? Yes, we are in the world, but not of the world. Yes, I know. We are not to love the things of the world. Agreed. But let us not forget the unsaved are not the enemy, my friends. They are the mission field. Unbelievers do what unbelievers do. They sin. Abundantly, rampantly, repeatedly. How do we know that? Because we did the same exact thing. Lest we forget, such were you and I at one point in our lives until somebody loved us enough to share the gospel with us. I'm telling you, I'm not telling you, I'm sorry. I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you to join together in darkness. I would never, ever tell you to do that. We are to be separated from such things. But if we take that too far, we start to become like the Pharisees who in their attempts to be pure in their religion refused people the one thing they really needed to hear. You know what that was? God's truth. And then they deprived them of the one thing they really needed to see. You know what that was? Love. Love for one another. Beloved it, we don't have to conform to the worldly beliefs or approve of ungodly behavior. We don't have to condone sinful behavior and sinful choices. But we do have to love them enough to share the gospel with them, both in the words that we speak Same way that Jesus loved you and put someone into your life to share the gospel with you while you were yet a sinner. Even if they push you away or scorn you for loving them, do it anyway. And keep doing it as long as the Lord tarries or as long as you have breath in your lungs. Why? So that all men will know that you are His disciples. What an impact PBC can have in this community if we could just love one another the way that Christ loves us. Point number one, Christians' love is manifested to our fellow believer. Point number two, Lots of people say they love through their words, but the litmus test of your love is when you actually love the way Christ loves you, when you actually demonstrate. I want to talk about three ways in which we can demonstrate this love of Christ, and they all begin in our own hearts first, and as always, because the heart is the core of our desire to obey Christ's command to love one another, and they all start with one word called Here's the first way. Number one, will you commit to obey God and love one another? Will you do that? Are you willing to commit to loving one another beginning today? Not based on how you feel about the other person. Not quid pro quo, not not because of what you did for me. Well, then I'll love you back. But as Christ loves you with agape love, with a will, love that chooses to love others like Christ even if they're not being lovable. Are you willing to put away your own personal escape clause so that Christ will be magnified? Are you willing to put Christ's glory over your own? Is it going to be all about Jesus or is it going to be all about you? Are you committed to love believers so that others will look and say, There, there is Christ like love. And I don't understand it, but I want to love like that. Are you committed to loving the unbeliever by sharing the gospel and demonstrating Christ like love, even though you may not agree? sacrifice your personal feelings for the glory of Christ. My friends, we live in a world today where everything we do seems to be justified if all we say is we're offended or hurt. I'm offended by this, so that so that, that justifies why I did that. I was hurt by this, so that, that then it gives me exemption for doing this. Are you willing to forsake that worldly thinking Are we willing to love one another like Jesus loves us because we understand that our self-imposed standard of being hurt or offended is actually nothing compared to the reality of what Christ actually experienced? Are we willing to sacrifice winning the argument for the sake of the unity of the body? Are we willing to be mischaracterized or denigrated like Paul or like Jesus to demonstrate love for one another? Are you willing to put the the needs of others ahead of yourself as Paul instructs us in Philippians 2? Can we have, as a body of Christ, sacrifice being right so that we can love one another by doing what's right? Which is more choices, aren't they? But this is why Christ is telling his disciples this in the upper room, because he knows what they're going to be facing, and he knows their hearts, and he knows what's going to happen. And so he's giving them an instruction, and basically he's saying this, I don't care what the world throws at you. I don't care what your conflict is between other believers. Here's the thing that supersedes it all. Love one another. Not by your standard of love, but by mine is what Christ says. And if we do that, it'll carry you through every conflict. And no matter what happens, you'll still love one another and he will be glorified. And people will know you are his disciples. He didn't say it would be give them any escape clauses for non-compliance. In fact, the expectation is they will be obedient in both thought and action. So first, a commitment to obey God and to love one another. Secondly, a commitment to sacrifice your personal feelings for the glory of Christ. And here's a third one, a commitment to take action and demonstrating. Are you committed starting today to demonstrate your love for all those that God has placed in your circle of influence, whether it's church or school or jobs or family? Are you committed starting today to become more intentional about demonstrating Christ like love to your fellow believers? Are you committed starting today to become more intentional about demonstrating Christ like love for unbelievers? First. the commandment that carries us through all of this that he's going to talk about it, John 13, 14, 15, and 16 believe it or not it's demonstrating your love for one another this is what makes us different from the world it's how we love one another Christian love is manifested to our fellow believers, it's manifested to the unbeliever it's manifested through our actions to prepare our hearts. God love one another. Make a commitment to sacrifice your personal feelings for the glory of Christ, and then make a commitment to take action in demonstrating your love for one another. This is my heart's desire for all of you here at Fortis Bible Church. Imagine the those who know you know without a doubt that you belong to Jesus because of the way you love one another. These final instructions for Jesus are most important because he knows he's leaving them and they cannot go where he's going. How important do you think these words were to Jesus for him to make sure they're included in his final instructions? How important do you think they were for the disciples hearing them, knowing that Jesus is giving them Thank you, dear Lord. thing to be reminded of here today, Lord, today and every day in our lives thank you father for the truth of your word finish this now